Today we're going to be continuing uh, our fall preaching series, Living the Mission. Next Sunday I'm going to wrap the series up. And as we have uh, journeyed through this this fall, our theme has been, if we're going to live the mission, we must first understand the mission. Now, I just want to share with you this morning as we, we start this message that when you hear that I, I go into Cuba and I do a pastor's conference, I want you to know that I go in doing that with the full support and permission of the Cuban government, that I apply for a religious visa, and I am thankful to God that even though it's often last minute before I get word back that every time so far I have been granted uh, the visa. And I, I just want you to understand how it works. So I fill out the paperwork and I send it to the leaders of the church in Cuba. Then they, on my behalf, apply for a religious visa. And if the visa is granted or not granted, they are informed, usually 10, 12 days before my travel. That, and so I always have to book a ticket in faith. And, uh, and then once it's approved, they pick up the little hard copy actual paper of my visa. They scan it and they email it to me. Also, the church that's hosting it has to apply for a permit to hold it. And so the church had been approved to hold it. I had been approved to come. And so what I do when I walk into customs is I go up to an immigration officer. I show them the photocopy of my visa. They go back to the immigration office because the people in Cuba literally drive it to the airport on the day I'm getting in about two hours ahead and physically drop it uh, at the airport. They're waiting on the other side of customs for me. I'm on the inside and the visa's in the customs office. So when I come in and I show the visa, they go get it and then I'm processed through. So it's usually a pretty smooth process, except for this year. Yes. So I'm, I, I came down and I did my usual thing and about 10 minutes later they came back and said, your visa is not here. And I thought, oh no. Because last year I arrived to find out that the permit for the church we were hosting in had been canceled the morning of my arrival. Now, fortunately, I had planned to do two that, that year, and so I still ended up doing one, but one of them was canceled. So I thought, okay, what's going on here? And so they said, have a seat. And I said, well, I've been sitting for a while. I, I can stand while I wait. Well, let me tell you, eventually you, you sit down because it's going on for a long time. And so I'm sitting in there. This is literally what the arrival um, customs area looked like while I was sitting there. I was it, like literally. The plane had come, all the tourists were off to the, to the resorts, and I'm sitting here two hours later. I'm still sitting there. And in those two hours, as time is going on, I'm starting to feel concerned because I'm thinking, do they have it, but they're not going to give it to me? Did something happen to my colleagues on the other side on their way to the airport? And so I'm starting to feel concerned. I don't have, I don't have any way to communicate with them. I found an old Wi-Fi card that hadn't expired in my bag. So I'm, text, I'm Facebook messaging Jennifer back and forth. And I don't know who she's with, but whoever it is, they're praying. And... Anyway, I'm, I'm feeling concerned, I'm uncomfortable, 
because I'm, I'm vulnerable here. I'm, I'm in immigration in Cuba, and I'm being held, and it's been two hours, and it's, it's a little bit intimidating, and I'm feeling powerless. There's nothing I can do. I know on the other side are my two bags. I'm envisioning them, you know, are they going through my bags? Does someone take my bags? You know, I, I don't know what's going on. Well, finally, two hours later, the visa arrived. Apparently, the person that was bringing it my colleagues were there at 12.30. This is 3.30 now in the afternoon when the person who was bringing it finally arrived and everything was okay. Now, I'm telling you that story just, just to say living the, missions, living the mission means there's going to be moments when we are forced outside of our comfort zones and our reliance will need to be on the authority of Jesus because we have no power in our own abilities to change anything. Today, we're going to be considering Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5 as we continue to attempt to understand the mission we are called to live out in our daily lives. So let's just take a look at the scripture together this morning. It says, they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So let's walk through this passage this morning. We're going to start with, a place, a place. Jesus' ministry up until now has focused on the Jewish context. But our scripture today takes place in Gentile territory. We're making a, uh, you know, a, a shift here. The kingdom of God is not just for the Jews. The, the kingdom, uh, the mission of Jesus is not just to reach the Jews. Jesus' mission is to reach all people, the whole world, all cultures, all people. In fact, many of the prophecies and testimonies around his birth uh, point to that fact. And so we're seeing a foretaste of his ultimate ministry here early in his ministry. The area that we're focusing on in this story is an area on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee known as the Decapolis or uh, the Gerasenes. It's the Decapolis, because it's actually 10 towns that make up this area, and the Jews avoided the area because it was primarily inhabited by Gentiles, and the lifestyle of the Gentiles was considered to be unclean by the Jewish religious people. And so we're told that the specific area that Jesus targets, not only is it full of Gentiles, but it is a burial area, it is a cemetery, and also it is a location of pig farms. And so in Jewish teaching, to have contact with death, or pigs, or Gentiles, was considered unclean, and would require a Jewish person to go through extensive washing rituals just to get back to being considered to be clean again. And so for this reason, the Jews would avoid the Gentiles, they would avoid burial areas, they would avoid 
pigs and their farms and all of those things. And so, because they didn't want to have to go through everything they would have to go through afterwards to become clean again. Now, we notice in Scripture, it's Jesus' idea to go there. In Mark chapter 3, verse 45, Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. Hey, guys, I have a good idea. Let's go over to the other side. Now, we're told as we read the Scripture, this Scripture up to the one that we read this morning, that getting there didn't come easy. That there's a story of being caught in this life-threatening storm on the way over there, and Jesus had to stand in the boat, and he rebuked the wind, and he rebuked the waves, and everything became calm, and they were able to arrive safely on the other side. I love this story because, of course, my mind races back there, and I just imagine being on the beach at the moment of their arrival. This boat comes ashore next to the graveyard, next to the pig farm, in Gentile territory, and it's filled with Jews. This is not something that happens every day in the, in the garrisons. It's not an everyday event. I can only imagine how uncomfortable the disciples were feeling. I can only imagine how far out of their comfort zone they were at this moment because it went every, against everything that they had been taught that was appropriate, what's taught was true their entire lives. All growing up, they were told to avoid all of these things, and now all of them are present in one place. Perhaps that's why Mark says, they went across to the other side, but only talks about Jesus getting out of the boat. In fact, none of the other gospel writers, you can look this up after your nap this afternoon, none of the other gospel writers record anyone other than Jesus getting out of the boat either. No one says anyone other than Jesus got out of the boat. It's very likely that the disciples never left the boat but watched everything from the comfort of the boat. The main character here, a person. What compelled Jesus to go to places that others were reluctant to go to was the value of the person that he was meeting there, was the people he wanted to reach. And so as soon as Jesus got out of the boat, the main character in the story presents himself, and he's a, it's a very unusual scenario. It says that a man from the tombs came to see him. He was unclean. He was living in an unclean place. He was living among the tombs. He was alienated from his family, from his friends, from his community. He was alone in this place. He was demon-possessed. No one could even bind him anymore. He had incredible strength. Not even chains could hold him down. He's, so we read this morning, he would break the iron. And he's miserable. He's tormented. Day and night, he's crying out from the tombs and from the hills to find comfort, to find relief. And, and to do it, he would find himself cutting himself just to, to give himself a little bit of relief from the, from the pain and the discomfort he was feeling. And so as Jesus walked upon the beach, he voluntarily approached Jesus. Jesus didn't beckon him. Jesus didn't demand him to come. He just came up to Jesus voluntarily. 
And not only did he come up, he fell down in front of him. Now, this is not an act of worship because we know at this point that this man is under the control of demons. And so even when he speaks, it's not him that's speaking. It's actually the demons inside of him that are speaking. So this is not an act of worship. This is clearly a confrontation of two spiritual powers, of two opposing authorities. And by falling before Jesus, it's clear who the ultimate authority here. Mark is making it clear to us that it is Jesus that is in the position of ultimate authority. Now, the demons attempt to establish control over Jesus in this scenario. And in the world of dark magic, in this culture at this time, to know and declare the name of a person or the name of a spirit was believed to give you power over them. And so Jesus has already told the demons to come out of the man, but they're trying to resist his authority. Now, what I find really interesting when you read from Mark 3 to Mark 5 is that when Jesus calmed the storm, when he stood with his followers and spoke words and the winds died down and the waves, be the water becomes calm, the disciples looked at each other and they asked this question. Who is this? Who is he? That even the wind and the waves obey him. What kind of person is this? Who is this person? Interestingly enough, a little while later, here, Mark answers this question and shows us that even the demons of hell know who Jesus is. The disciples, they don't know. They can't get their heads around that this is who this is, but these demons know who he is. Their question is not, who are you? They didn't say, what is your name? They know the answer to that question. In fact, their addressing him states that they know his name. They said, Jesus, son of the most high God. They know who he is. They're not trying to get his name. Their question is not, who are you? Their question is, what do you want with us? Why are you here? What are you up to? What's your agenda? That's what they're interested in knowing. They know who he is. And they're begging Jesus not to torture them. And Jesus then asked the demon, well, what is your name? And the demon replies, Legion. Now, legion is not the name of a demon. Legion means a mul that there are multiple demons possessing this man. They're acting and working together to destroy him. Jesus is not establishing a formula here for casting out demons as some Christian fiction has shaped some of our theology to believe that if we can find out the name, then we, we can do it. That, that's not what this is. He's instead showing us that there are multiple demons involved in this particular situation. And Jesus is demonstrating here that he is about to show the extent of his authority. This is a significant moment. This is not even about a one-on-one -on -one encounter. This is Jesus up against multiple demons. And there's no question that Jesus is going to send them away. He's going to cast them out of this man. The demons already know this. They know. They've got the notice. They're evicted. They got the notice. The question is, where are they going to go? 
And we're told there's a herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. And the demons ask Jesus, send us into the pigs. And so Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs. And as a result, we are told 2,000 pigs rushed into the water and were drowned. That was the biggest loss of bacon ever in the history of the world. (laughs) Right there. Gone in a moment. Jesus didn't kill the pigs. He didn't send the demons into the pigs. The demons chose to enter the pigs, and the demons killed the pigs. The act of destruction was a demonstration of the extent, and we can't miss this. Because sometimes we get bogged down on, oh, the poor pigs. The act of destruction was a demonstration of the extent of the evil possessing this one man. And it's also a demonstration of the authority of Jesus over them. It's also important to understand that in this culture, people believed, disciples included, that hell and the abyss existed under the water. There are many creatures of hell that are referenced in Scripture in terms of coming from the water. And so when Jesus walked on water, when Jesus calmed the water with his voice, with his words, he's demonstrating to those who are in company with him that he has authority not just over the elements, but over hell and the abyss itself. And so by the demons causing the pigs to run into the water and drown, the demons are symbolically here returning to hell where they belong. They're going back to the water. Now the result is, this man's life, which was ruined, who was isolated, who was intent on self-destruction, is now free... Because the mission of Jesus is so far-reaching that Jesus breaks the traditional borders and the expectations, and Jesus does the unthinkable. Why? Because this one man is worth saving. This one who is so, whose life is so horrific is worth it. Thirdly, there's a purpose. Those who were caring for the pigs, I mean, they, they're just like, man, I'm just trying to make a living here. They witnessed this catastrophic event. How do you go home to your boss and say, you know, this morning, hey, <laughs> there were like 2,500 pigs when we started, hey. <laughs> well, <laughs> you're not going to believe this, but this guy showed up and, well, now there's only 500 pigs, Right? They're caring. They've witnessed this. And they rush into town. And I can just imagine, oh, man, you guys see what happened. And the pigs are dead. Right? And people from town are, I mean, I grew up in a small town. When the fire alarm went off, I mean, anyone who was available, they chased the fire truck, right? You know, here we're just like, oh, I wonder where that's going. Oh, no, 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 not in my town. If something's burning, we're going to be there. And if we can get in the way, we're getting in the way. Right? And so they're rushing. It's like the fire alarm went off and they're just rushing to get there. And the crowd is just standing there. Their mouths are hanging open. They're assessing the damage. They'd never seen anything like this before. And they said, Jesus, please leave. Man, get out of here. 
you got to get out of here. If you don't get out of here, I don't know where this is all going. Because he's a disturbing presence to them. You're a disturbing presence. And so Jesus is fine. If you don't want me here, I'm good to go. So we're told he's heading back to the boat and he gets in the boat with the disciples. <laughs> right? But the man who was demon-possessed is now free, and he runs up to Jesus, and he says, don't leave yet. I want to come with you. I want to come with you, man. You, you changed my life. I want to come where you're going. And Jesus said, no. No. Go back to your family. Tell your family what happened. Go back into your community. Go back into life. And tell them what happened. Because Jesus had changed this man's life. And he had a story to tell. And it wouldn't have been very hard to convince people because they knew what he was. And now they see what he is. He has a story of deliverance to tell. He, he's got a story of life change to tell. And we're told the man begins to tell everyone what Jesus had done for him. And it says the people are amazed. They remember, yeah, yeah, you're that guy. I've never seen you with clothes on before. You're that guy, the demon-possessed man that lived in the tombs, who screamed out day and night, who cut himself because he was tormented. That's you. It was impacting. In fact, a couple chapters later, we see that the impact on his testimony was so significant that in chapter 7, when Jesus comes back, can you believe Jesus comes back again? They're waiting and saying, hey, if he did it once, he can do it again. And clothed and free and restored to his family and full of excitement and joy. Devoting his life to telling the story so others might embrace Jesus. The same Jesus that changed his life. So what are three quick things I can leave with you this morning? Well, the first is value. Just imagine it on the screen. Value. We can never underestimate the value of a person that is created in the image of God. And that covers everyone. It's easy for us to categorize which people are valuable and which people are not valuable. But I want to remind us this morning that God doesn't categorize people. God doesn't sit up there and go, okay, you know what? You're valuable. Yeah, you're not valuable. That's not how he does it. God doesn't categorize people. He loves them all. Now, sometimes I don't know about you, but I have a hard time with that because there's some people I don't want Jesus to love. You know what I'm saying? Right? I don't want him to love them. But he does. Because Jesus died for them all. Our world is filled with broken people, hurting people, hopeless people, evil people, whose only hope is Jesus Christ. Jesus has demonstrated to us in this account that we are to love the unlovable. To forgive the unforgivable. 
we're to reach out to the unreachable, to dare and cross the boundary lines, the pressure of culture, even more, the pressure of church culture. Because like the disciples, we have been told our whole lives where it's okay to go and not okay to go, what it is okay to do and not okay to do. And when we find ourselves in these moments, it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? It really is. And Jesus is daring us to cross into these areas where they are broken and hurting and hopeless people. Now, you might be here today, and maybe you're hurting. You're lonely, sad. You might even feel tormented. Maybe you're living your life in bondage. Maybe there's someone here, you're even harming yourself to cope. And that comes in all kinds of ways. You might feel like you're worthless. You have no value. That no one would even miss you even if you were gone. That the rejection that you have experienced in your life is so painful that you don't know how you could ever even hope to overcome it. Maybe some of you here today have at one point or even in these moments given consideration to taking your own life. Not that you don't want to live, but you just don't know how to live like this, right? But I want you to know today that you matter. You matter. God created you. God has a purpose for you. God wants to set you free. He wants to love you. You matter. You have value. Every one of us has value. The second thing is story. For a lot of years, I struggled with sharing my faith with others because, as we've often heard Carlene talk about, you know, I didn't grow up, you know, doing drugs and partying and, you know, like that just wasn't the path I picked. I just wasn't that kind of person. I just... You know, I did some stupid things as a teenager, which will remain in the vault. Because I want my kids to believe that I never did anything wrong ever. Right? But you know what it's like, right? You grow up going to Sunday school and youth and church and your parents are believers. And, you know, God is the focus and the center. And you get, you know, whatever. Struggle with my faith, with sharing it with others. Well, I don't have a good story. I don't know, I don't know what to say. You know, I wish I could tell them, you know, I've been to prison. <laughs> right? Someone in Cuba asked me, so how do you keep guys away from your daughters? I said, easy, sign on the front door. I have a gun and I don't mind going back to prison. <laughs> Fixes it every time. No problem. I've read a lot of books to try and help. I tried a lot of programs. Nothing seemed right. Seems forced. But then freedom came when I discovered that the greatest tool I had in sharing Jesus with others was living a life that modeled his grace that shared my story. You know who taught me that? A 20-year-old Mormon girl who, in, who was having a date, debate with me at the front 
door when I was younger. When she was losing the battle, she just looked at me and said, all I know is this changed my life. The debate was over. How do you respond to that? You can't argue that away. She says, this changed my life. That's all I know. Everything you're saying is refuting everything I believe, but I know it changed my life. Folks, that's the power of story. Because not only do we get to say that, but we know what the truth is, the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ and how he's changed our lives. We have our story. We all have a story. Those of us that are followers of Jesus, we have a story of how Jesus changed our lives. And we need to know our story because you know what? You can grow up in the church and have a story and you don't even know what your story is because you haven't given enough thought. We give a lot of thought to a lot of things, but not to our story. And we need to share our story, but you can't share something you haven't taken the time to process. And our story accomplishes two things that help us living the mission. Our story makes us real. Guess what? People can relate to real people. One of my greatest strengths is I'm real. My biggest weakness is (laughs) I'm real. (laughs) There's people that hate that about me because I make them so uncomfortable. They could never sit in this congregation. He's too real. I'm too disappointed in him. Well, join the crowd. I'm awfully disappointed in myself a lot of days. It's it's all good. But secondly, our story connects us with other people's stories. They're hearing your story and they're saying, oh, I can see myself in that story. I can imagine me in that story. If God could do that for you, then maybe he could do that for me. You could do that for me. Our story is not threatening. Our story is inspiring. So process your story. Understand your story. Learn how to share your story with others. God will use it as you share your story. And you'll be joining with him and living the mission when you're sharing your story. And finally, authority. Jesus is teaching us in this passage there's nothing that he doesn't have authority over. There may be things in your life that you've tried to overcome, and maybe it's been years, and you've not been successful. Maybe it's something that happened to you a long time ago that wounded you really deeply, and you have lived for years. Maybe some of you came out of childhood into adulthood, and it is just as raw and just as real as the day that it happened to you. It may have been experiences that you had. It may have been losses that you experienced along the way. It may have been that time when someone significant in your life abandoned you. Maybe you have low self-worth. You don't feel like you're worth anything. Maybe it's your upbringing, the home you grew up in. It wasn't nurturing and kind and pushing you to to, that you could be anything. It made you feel like you were nothing. Maybe today you struggle with some form of addiction. Let me tell you, it's not a stretch to imagine that on a Sunday morning in a church, there's not someone struggling with an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction or a drug prescription addiction or a gambling problem. Or pornography. And despite how hard you have tried, you've not been able to overcome, to conquer it. Well, I want you to know today that Jesus has authority 
over whatever is intimidating and threatening and causing you to live in bondage, whatever it is that is ravaging your life this morning. And if we're willing to take the right action, because it does involve activity on our part, and go through the right processes while relying on God's power and authority, we can be victorious in our lives. Because he can break the chains. We sang about it this morning. He can break the chains. Now, what I find most interesting, and I know I've shared this with you before, but I just think it's an incredible picture of not only how Mark writes, but the message he's sending in his gospel. Mark ends his account of the life of Jesus. And how is he showing us Jesus at the end? Well, this is how he's showing us Jesus. Jesus is naked. Jesus is bound. Jesus is beaten. He's bruised. He's bloodied. He's isolated. He's alone. He's crying out. And he's among the tombs. The crucifixion of Jesus is the greatest onslaught of hell ever recorded in history. The damaging assault of evil on display, more than 2,000 pigs, that's nothing with what's on display here at the end of the book. But the story doesn't end there. God allowed Satan and the demons of hell to lash out their worst on him so that God could demonstrate his authority over sin and death and hell and the grave. And the story of Mark's gospel ends with a Savior who is risen, a Savior that hell has defeated hell, a Savior who is a king, who is victorious. And I want us to know today that when we live out the mission, we too share in his authority. In Luke 9, 1 to 2, Jesus said to his followers, I'm giving you my authority to go out and live the mission. We share in the authority of Jesus. We are anointed and empowered by the Spirit. And when Jesus left, the disciples carried on his ministry under the empowering of the Spirit. And people were so amazed when they heard them and saw them in action. And then when they heard him speak and, and carry out the mission, they said, in what, what authority does they have? They speak with such authority. They act with such authority. Why? Because it was the empowering of the Spirit that gave them the same authority to carry on the mission that Jesus had started. As we continue to live the same mission, may I remind you it's the same mission, and may I remind you that we are empowered by the same Spirit, and may I also remind you that we share in the same authority, the authority of Jesus. I'm going to invite our worship team back. If we're going to live the mission of Jesus. We're going to need to go to places that make us feel uncomfortable. And we're going to need to see people the way Jesus sees them. And we're going to need to stand in his authority as we share our story and his truth of how he has changed our lives 
and can change the lives of others. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And our worship team is going to lead us. And I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and take their place. Because maybe, just maybe, there's someone in this room this morning, and maybe you can say that at this moment, whether you ever have or just in this moment you are not, but you are not a follower of Jesus. And you want to be. And so in this place this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to make the decision, I want to follow Jesus. And we want to encourage you in that, and we want to pray with you about that. And so as our worship team leads us in our congregation, is worshiping in this environment this morning. If that's you, I'm going to invite you to, to come and share that with one of our prayer teams so we can pray with you. And if you feel like you don't have the courage to do that, then you know what? Rock the world of the person next to you and say, Pastor said you'd help me with this. I have that confidence in you. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I'm going to be honest. This week, I've been struggling with whether to take my life or to live. That I'm damaging myself to cope with my pain. Maybe you're here. And this is not something the typical pastor probably talks about every Sunday. But we're talking about it today. And if it's you, we want to come alongside you and support you and pray for you and help you. Because you're worth it. You're worth it. Maybe yours is a health need. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's a job. You need someone to pray with you. We'll do that. And the rest of us who are living the perfect lives, we just need to pray in our seat and worship God and allow his spirit to drive this stuff home. Right? That's what we do. If you have to go, it's okay. I still got 16 minutes left on my hourglass, according to the clock in the back. If you have to go, I get that. There's places we need to be. But you know what? There's nowhere I want to be right now than here. And there's nothing I want to see anymore right now than what God's going to do in somebody's life. And I thank God for that opportunity this morning. Let's not, let's not just let it pass by. Let's just not push it away. Grab a hold of it. Embrace it. Run with it. When I say earlier in the service, you can leave different. You came, that's not lip service, folks. That's been 30 years of serving Jesus in full-time ministry. The only prayer that I desire is that we walk out these doors. We're different than we walked in. Why? Because he's here. You are so good. The pain in our lives, our health, our jobs, nothing changes that. You are good. And you never change. Yes. Father, I thank you.